Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus at Stanford University is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast informs, educates, and eliminates the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado, the principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte, for our guest today. Let's welcome Ron Baker, CPA. Ron's one of the world's leaders in the area of pricing professional services. In addition to his role, he is founder of Verisage Institute, a think tank dedicated to teaching value-based pricing to professionals around the world. Ron's been inducted into the CPA Practice Advisors Accounting Hall of Fame. For more information, feel free to visit thesoulofenterprise.com and verisage.com. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E dot com. Hello, Ron. We're overly uh, excited Tom, to have I'm you on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> Been Thank waiting you for so this much. for a while, actually, several months. I'm glad uh, we were able to connect calendars. Ron, can you share with us an early inspiration into value based pricing? If there's a galvanizing moment or moments, we'd love it if you'd share it with us. Yeah, there was. I started my CPA career, and, and by the way, I'm a recovering CPA, so I, I don't practice. <laughs> recovering? Anymore. Um, But I started my life in a big eight accounting firm. And and so that's how you carbon date a CPA. You listen to how they refer to the big eight, big six, big five, now big four, so that you can tell what era I'm from that I worked for a big eight. And when I left there, you know, I started my own firm. And in your own firm, you're kind of responsible for everything, right? You're the janitor, you're HR, (laughs) you're marketing, you're everything. And you also take on pricing responsibilities, which is something I never had to do when I worked for the big eight. And I realized really, really fast, Tom, that the billable hour was a lousy customer experience. I would have customers call me or come in quite angry, waving an invoice and saying, why didn't you tell me it was going to cost so much? And I'm not kidding you. My only response was I spent the time. And they would look at me and go, well, it doesn't matter. I don't, you know, I can't afford this or it's past my budget or why didn't you tell me? They weren't necessarily arguing about the price. They were arguing about the unpredictability of the price. Who likes to be surprised, especially with something like price? So I walked into my partner's office. I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. I said, we have business clients and they don't get 
they don't get the pricing complaints we do because it dawned on me finally, this was the epiphany moment. And I, it was literally like a burning bush moment. <laughs> I said, every other business on the planet gives me a price before I buy something. That's the laws of economics, human psychology, customer buying behavior, everything. We were violating that with the billable hour by billing in arrears. We call it billing and ducking. You know, you bill, you duck, you send out these little oh, envelopes oh, oh. like the Unabomber. Yeah. People, and people <laughs> open them up and, very true. you know, they get. Yeah. And, and so we just started doing fixed prices. This was in 1989. There was nobody on the circuit talking about this. There was no books, at least in the professional world, on this. And until later, I did find out there was one by the ABA. But we just started doing it, made every mistake in the world, but stuck with it because I wanted to create a better customer experience. It wasn't about the marketing so much or the economics. It was about creating a better customer experience. The customers loved the certainty. It allowed us to charge a higher price, sell more services to each customer, and keep them more loyal. It also allowed us to get rid of a lot of low-end customers who weren't a good fit and kind of upgrade the entire practice. Oh, my. And how long was that? I don't know if you can recall how long the process from the beginning of that burning bush moment to where you really went out in the field and actually obtained a client based on that. Yeah, it was it was relatively rapidly because what we did was we started with new customers. Every new customer that came in was put on this methodology and they loved it. So it was a point of differentiation from our competitors. But also we knew that if we didn't start having conversations with our existing customers, that we would never, you know, get most of our revenue since most of the revenue in a professional firm comes from existing customers. We'd never get it done unless we had the conversations with our existing customers. My first conversation with my first customer, my first existing customer on this took place on the 19th hole of a golf course. And when I told him what I wanted to do, give him a fixed price, bundle in access to me so he could call me or meet with me anytime, anywhere, any length without a clock running in the background. You know, because one of the reasons that we don't call our lawyers or accountants is we don't want to hear the clock running in the True. background. I mean, if we talk about the kids and he has a coughing <laughs> attack, you know, it cost me seventy dollars. It's it's just crazy how we measure value in you know by the hour. And the customers who my first three or four that I did this with, they all looked at me and said, "Baker, it's about time." They absolutely loved it. And it dawned on me that, hey, if new customers love it, why wouldn't my existing customers love it if I took the time to explain it to them? Yeah, it's about time. Interesting that that was their feedback in particular because there was no process yet for that. Right. That's right. Yep. And and they, and they I even fixed the payment terms, Tom. So we would set up the price for a year of work. Because it's relatively easy for an accounting firm, and I know it probably differs a little bit for architects, and we have this evergreen work that we do every year, right? Everybody's got to file a tax return every year and do a whole bunch of other compliance things. And I put them on a payment term cycle. I took the price, and I just didn't divide it by 12. I would look at their cash flow of their business, and I would structure the payment terms around their cash flow. So if they were a Christmas retailer, they wouldn't have to pay me anything during the summer months when they're broke. I'd get most of it, you know, in, in October, November, December, January. And they absolutely loved that. They could budget for it because a lot of them would complain to me that I'd send them bills in, you know, April or May. 
big bills, expecting them to pay it within 30 days. And they say, you of all people, better than my wife, know my cash flow better than I do. And you're sending me bills during the time of year I can't pay it. You know, what's interesting, uh, this is my understanding, and correct me if, uh, if you think I'm wrong. It sounds like you came from a human element before you even did a numeric centric basis. Very much so. I came from a total, at the time, I was really involved in studying TQS, which stood for total quality service. Today, we'd probably call it customer experience. Okay. And and I studied the, the leaders in customer service. I mean, just superb companies like Ritz-Carlton, the Fairmont, Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus, Disney, Lexus, Gore-Tec. I, all these companies have stellar stellar customer service reputations, FedEx, even to this day. And I I said, I want to do that. I want to do what they do. (laughs) And that's how I got into it. It wasn't a numerical analysis. That's a really keen insight. Thank you. We'll touch on that, the Disney facet of it, because it's a segue to that human element that that is primary. And, uh, what got you involved with the, in Disney, if you were at liberty to share, and, and how has that also helped with the client experience? Well, studying Disney for years, I learned about the Disney Institute. One of my father's colleagues had, had gone to uh, actually Disney University because for a while they, they were running public courses. This was down in, the, in their Florida you know, Disney World. And I always wanted to, you know, go to Disney University ever since I learned about that. And I wasn't able to do that until 1997. So a good eight years or so after we started down this road, I used to write an article for a professional newsletter, Harcourt Brace. And it was all about great customer service. And as a, I got to get into the Disney Institute based on being a journalist. So I wrote a series of columns on my experience and it was called earning my mouse ears and it was in three parts and you can find those on my LinkedIn profile. I'm one of the LinkedIn influencers and those three articles are are up there. And if you want, I can send you links to them after the show. Wow. Did they meet or exceed your expectations when you were a part of it? Tom, it was a three, I think it was a three and a half day course, if I remember right. And I tell people, and I'm, I'm totally serious about this, the best education I've ever had in my life. And three and a half days versus four yep. years? <laughs> yep. Unbelievable. Un, I mean, unbelievable. They are masters at this. And, and now I understand they're still kind of, now they've reopened to the public. They used to not. They, they shut it down for a while and just did private corporate training. But now I think they're kind of opening up to the public again. And it's really worth going to. If you ever see Disney Institute in your neighborhood, because they do have a traveling show, I think, go. It's going to cost you some big bucks, but go. It's worth it. It's tremendous. Now that you said it will cost you some big bucks, but it's worth it. That sounds very similar to the value pricing in that it's, uh, it, it sounds like you actually experience greater value than even than the price. Yes, and it illustrates a great point because lots of people go to Disney and pay a fortune, right, rather than going to Universal or SeaWorld. And lots of people have Apple products sitting in front of them right now, and they pay a fortune for that, and there's cheaper models that they could buy. The fact of the matter is customers are not price conscious. Customers are value conscious. And if they see that the value exceeds the price, then they're willing to pay the price. If a customer ever tells you, 
your price is too high. What they're really telling you is, I don't see the value. Yes. And, and that value, is that just, do you walk, wake, sleep, dream value in your mind? <laughs> I, I do. And it's tough because. <laughs> it's just reaching, as, but it's, it's turned out to be true. As an accountant, okay. you know, we're, we're, we're so precise. We love our spreadsheets. We love to carry things out to two decimal, five decimal places. You know, we, I think sometimes our profession rather be precisely wrong rather than approximately right. Oh, very and interesting with, distinction. With value, value is completely subjective. And it took me a while to figure that out too, Tom. That was another critical insight. And that wasn't a burning bush moment. That took, that took me a couple years to figure out through studying mostly Austrian economics. But this idea of the subjective theory of value, that idea is, the theory is that value is totally subjective. It's in the hearts, minds, and souls of the customer. And I can illustrate this really easily. Say you're in the desert and you haven't had water for four days. What's a bottle of Dasani water worth? Well, it would be practically priceless. You'd, you'd give everything you have, plus probably go into debt to get a hold of it because you're, it's going to save your life. But what if you're home washing the dog with the same quantity of water? Well, now it's, that water is worth a lot less. What if you're flooded in your basement with water? Well, now it's got a negative value. You can have to pay somebody to come out and pump it out. Yes. In all three cases, it's H2O. We haven't changed the product at all, not in the least. And from a cost accounting standpoint, the cost of getting the water to those three locations is about the same. So accounting can't explain the value difference. How does it go from practically infinite to negative? Cost accountants can't explain that. Accountants can't explain it. The only people who can explain it are economists who have the subjective theory of value. And so... You know, the labor theory of value, which basically says the, the value of something is determinative by how many labor hours go into it, is kind of absurd. Because if you think about that and carry to its logical extreme, a rock found next to a diamond in a mine should be of equal value. After mm -hmm. all, it took the miners just as long, just as many mm -hmm. billable hours to find the rock as it did the diamond. Yet I don't see too many rocks in the jewelry store display cases. <laughs> or... Or uh, one more example, your 15th slice of pizza should be just as valuable as your first because it took the pizza person just as much time to make the 15th slice as it did the first. That's insane. It ignored the labor theory of value, which is a Marxian concept, by the way, Karl Marx, and it even goes back to Aristotle. But it, it's wrong because it doesn't, it doesn't account for the customer. And I was probably the first guy to tie the labor theory of value to the billable hour and hang kind of the, the Marxian tag on it and say, this is insane. We're running with the labor theory of value and this has been absolutely discredited. Ron, if we'll touch back on the Austrian economics, can you share with us your uh, experience and insight into that? I've not heard of that. Yeah, the Austrian economics, and it's not about economics in Austria. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it was a school of thought kind of founded by a guy, Karl Menger, who, who actually developed, along with two other economists at the time, by the way, the subjective theory of value. And what they were trying to do was refute the Karl Marxian labor theory of value. Now, I, and there's a whole history of this, and I don't want to go down this road because, you know, you talk about economic history, it bores people. But... Suffice to say that the labor theory of value was held by a lot of very smart people, including Karl Marx, including Adam Smith, David Ricardo, all these brilliant economists, 
kind of held held on to this theory way way past its cell date. But in 1871-74 time period, these three economists from three different countries all independently came up with the subjective theory of value because they were trying to refute the Marxian labor theory of value. And so in the economics profession, this is well established and has been for a hundred and some odd years, 140 years or whatever. It's just now starting to be realized by business people, probably since around the mid eighties. So, you know, the Austrian school of economics, Karl Menger, Friedrich Hayek, which I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, or Ludwig von Mises is another one. They all talk about the, the subjective theory of value. Yeah. It sounds, um, is that rather timeless? Or is it contingent on wherever a society, country, nation, or, okay, we're, we're really going far now, a business or an organization <laughs> is? Do you believe that it, you can sustain that for a thousand plus years? I believe it's universal. And like any theory, I think it is subject to refutation. So if we come up with a better theory of value, and maybe we will, it could be supplanted, but uh, it explains a lot to me. It explains why why prices vary. Just think about even buying gas, right? You might drive by one gas station and then hit another in a half mile, and it might be 20 cents higher. What explains that? Yeah. <laughs> what, what explains your willingness to pay for a bottle of water at a hockey game and spend $12, <laughs> but you can buy it at Costco for a quarter a bottle because you're buying it on pallets? And only the subjective theory of value explains that. Now, you, we spoke before we uh, got on the show, and it was a part of when you, your first experience or, or one of your experiences, having it worked, work for you and uh, explaining to others that uh, they think it doesn't work when you're telling them, no, I'm actually using it. And you're telling me it doesn't work. I still get that today. That you you can't possibly do this. This doesn't. You know, the clients would never go for it. You hear all the. I've heard Tom. I've heard every objection in the book. Oh, that works for you because you're a small firm, but we big firms can't do it. And then you get into the big firms or the small firms, and and they say, oh, well, I could see this working in a big firm. They have more resources than we do. We're just a tiny, you know. So you're on the east of the Mississippi. We're west of the Mississippi. This would never work. You know, all of that. The fact of the matter is, Bain and Company and McKinsey and company charge or price based on value, and they don't do timesheets. And that was a complete reengineering of their business model. And if Bain and McKinsey and Accenture can do it, then any size firm can do it. And indeed, we I have personally helped many size firms uh, make this transition. So it is finally, I, I can say this about hourly billing versus value pricing. I think the war of ideas has been won. There's really nobody out there defending the billable hour anymore. I've, we've put it on the defense. I'm kind of like the lead prosecutor trying to give it the death penalty. <laughs> and I think we've succeeded in that, at least in the war of ideas. Now it's just a question of how long does it take to diffuse into these various populations like architecture, IT consulting, accounting, law firms, ad agencies. And there's different diffusion rates in each one of those professional sectors, including actuarial but there's nobody out there that can intellectually defend the billable hour. I've, I've torn it apart from every single angle. Love it. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. 
The Jonas Project, named after fallen Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander Jonas Kelsall, works with veterans who want to start their own businesses. The Jonas Project provides the support and resources, such as volunteer mentors, needed to help businesses through the first two years. As these veteran-owned businesses succeed, they look to hire fellow veterans and family members to provide a critical foundation as service members transition to civilian life. To learn more or to help with a donation, visit the thejonasproject.org. That's J-O-N-A-S project.org. We're talking today with Ron Baker, one of the world's leaders in the areas of pricing professional services. For more information, feel free to visit thesoulofenterprise.com and Verisage, V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E dot com. Ron, one uh, argument that uh, you, uh, in my opinion, you've overcome already, but I'll share it with you almost verbatim from an architect. It says, uh, most architects do better by billing hourly than fixed fee. The reason for that is revisions. They can go on indefinitely, always improving a design. If an architect has to absorb these in his or her fee, the net drops rather quickly. I think you've answered it, but I'd love for you to you know take another. Oh, yeah. No, I'd love to take a swipe at that yeah. because that's, that's something we hear. I mean, we hear it from lawyers. We hear it from accountants. You know, they all say, well, we can't predict everything and the client's going to change their mind or, you know, in law, the other side is going to do something wacko or the judge is going <laughs> to issue a wacko ruling and, we, you know, we're going to have to spend all this time. Nobody's saying that when you give a fixed price, you don't put a scope around it. And once you put that scope around it, you have drawn a line of demarcation to be able to issue change requests and then change orders. So just like an auto mechanic gives you a quote to fix your brakes and then gets in there and finds out you need a tune-up, he's not just going to go ahead and fix it. He's going to call you up and say, hey, Tom, uh, we've noticed that you need a tune-up, and you're going to ask how much, and he's going to give you a price, and you're going to make a decision as the customer whether or not you want to move forward. Same with the contractor. And I think it was contractors who came up with the idea of a change order. The change order is the most sophisticated pricing tool probably ever devised by mankind. Mm. And it came from contractors because it's a communication tool. So we do no unauthorized work. When you start to know that you're being, it's being revised, then you have to draw the line and decide whether or not you want to issue a change order. And that could probably result in a higher price. And that's how you protect yourself when you give a fixed price. You still have to put a scope around it. Excellent. Excellent. The other um, take, and it, I think it may be a bit of a, maybe an ego bruise, but is the self-esteem, the value pricing and self-esteem. Can you share with our audience how they're, the two are uh, linked? Oh, wow. That is a great topic because I've, I've written three books on pricing specifically, and each one of them contains a chapter on self-esteem and pricing. The fact of the matter is, as professionals, we will never be paid more than we think we're worth. And if we don't think we're worth more than $100 an hour or 200 whatever the hourly rate mm-hmm. is, how will our customers ever think that? And so the first sale is with yourself. It's not with your customers. It's with you because you're never going to get paid more than you think you're worth. And, you know, as they say, self-esteem is the reputation we have with ourselves. <laughs> 
And I, I don't know about you, Tom, but I'm sometimes I'm worth a heck of a lot more than $500 an hour. I can have an epiphany in a car and come up with a million-dollar strategy for a customer. And probably, and I'm not an architect, but my one of my favorite stories, and I use this all the time, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, because I think it comes from a biography of one of Frank Lloyd Wright's draftsmen. But when he was doing Falling Water, he procrastinated that thing, never picked up a pencil. And finally, the guy called him one day and said, hey, I'm in the neighborhood. I'd love to drop by and see the preliminary plans for you know, they were building their second home, you know, dream home, him and his wife. And Frank Lloyd Wright says, oh, yeah, come on by. We've been expecting you. And the draftsmen are sitting there going, he hasn't picked up a pencil. Nobody has picked up a pencil. <laughs> and he walks over to his desk and he starts sketching out falling water. Right. Oh, they'll have tea here. And he draws this thing in like 15 minutes. The guy comes by. He looks at the plans, falls in love with it. They go to lunch. The draftsmen, I guess, have to, you know, clean it all up and, yeah, you know, sure. But it's like, what's the value of that to, to measure that brilliance by using the clock, by saying, OK, Frank Lloyd Wright spent half hour on that. No, he didn't. He spent his entire life on it. Gauging the hour, measuring value by the hour is the equivalent of plunging a ruler into your oven to determine its temperature. It's the wrong measuring stick. Well stated. Well stated. Great story. There's another one that I read, and I'm not sure where I found it. And looking up some intel for our interview today, according to the New York Times, Merv Griffin wrote a theme song or a jingle for Jeopardy, the, show, the television yeah. show Jeopardy. And in royalties, he's receiving multi-millions of dollars a year for that jingle that took, I think it was 20 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. I'm not sure. Probably not even. And yeah, last time I checked, it was eighty million dollars in royalties every time they play that. You know, na 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 na. You know, yes. I mean, just the, <laughs> and you hear Rolling Stones. You know, talk about how they wrote a song on the beach and oh, or yeah. the Beatles or these various bands. I mean, architects, just like all other professionals, we're knowledge workers, and you can't measure the value of knowledge work based on the inputs. It's it's by the output that's created and the impact it has on our customers' lives. And the billable hour just doesn't measure that. And to think it does is absolutely insane. <laughs> just by looking at those just two examples. So we're in How an insane you, world. <laughs> it, we, yes, I, I agree. Uh, there's lots of theories about why the billable hour has lasted as long as it has, but you can take comfort in knowing that we can blame the attorneys because they were the first professional firm to adopt it sure. in 1919. So, Tom, I want you to know this is the 100th anniversary of oh. the business model that says we sell time. We're having a big bash. It's a whole year <laughs> celebration. That's awesome. Uh, but it's just amazing to me how the shelf life of really crappy ideas. Yes. So that goes to say if really crappy ideas can be successful for a hundred years and maybe a little over, why not brilliant and effective ones? You know, I have a open philosophy when it comes to sharing my intellectual capital. Like I kind of give it all the way. It's, it's kind of like the Linux model. You know, there's tons of resources on our website. Our radio show is full of resources on how to do this. I mean, I try and help people with this all the way. And people say to me, why aren't you monetizing this? How, how can you possibly give your ideas away? To, you know, aren't you afraid people will rip off your ideas? And I say, no, if your ideas are really, really good, you have to ram them down people's throats. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's very, very, very true. So 
with that ramming down the throat. Here, here is something I, I love that you talked about in one of your pieces. There is nobility in earning what you are worth. I mean, we know where the word nobility comes from, but how did you, why did you choose to use that word in that what you are worth? I agree with it, but I'm curious as to why you, you chose that yeah, word. Yeah, because I, I see so many professionals just long before they even get in front of a customer talk themselves down. They say, oh, we're a commodity. You know, one of the, the words I hate one of the most is, is the word commodity. I would just love to extricate that word from the English language because Every business thinks whatever it is they sell. I don't care what it is. I've heard this at every business conference I've ever been to. I was at a funeral conference, and they said, oh, funerals are becoming a commodity. You can buy a casket at Costco for $400, and you can get cremated by Neptune for 300 or whatever. And I thought to myself, what if Disney entered the funeral business? They would, would it, kill would it, it. no pun intended. Yeah, it wouldn't be a commodity. I could, in fact, it would be a pretty cool experience. You couldn't wait to get get to do it. <laughs> and, and yeah, and that's one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, talk about yeah. You could go to Disney University posthumously. Uh, <laughs> but that's one of my favorite questions to ask different industries: is what would happen if Disney started architecture firms? Exactly. I've used that before. I, I, although I use Virgin Atlantic and Richard Branson. If, yeah, he, if he if he one. got into uh, the plumbing business or anything, so can you describe what it is that they're doing as best you can and as succinct as you can and as fun as you can? What are they doing that if they did enter another space or another industry, they would rule the roost rather quickly? Yeah, they and they did that. Well, you can say, and, and, and to some extent, they have gotten in the funeral business, interestingly enough, because the guy who used to be the VP of Epcot Center actually now works for the somewhere in the funeral industry. We're trying to track him down, get him on the show. So that's interesting. And they started weddings years ago, and and you know, the, Disney's a six-figure wedding easily, and they now they do customized vacations, and you know, they just they start from the customer experience and work everything backwards. Rather than thinking about our firm and what's inside our four walls and our little silos and all of our little inputs, they start with where the value is, which is in the customer's heart and mind and soul, and they're really in tune to the feelings of the customer and the experience the customer has. I mean, Walt was a fanatic about this. Walt Disney, he talked about plussing the park. You know, he, he talked about plussing. How do we improve the customer experience? And I remember a story that they were debating in admin building for some of the execs, and Walt, he just got livid, and he said, no way. I don't want you people sitting in the building. I want you out there in the parks mm -hmm. learning how we can improve the guests' experience. Excellent. Share with us a bit of your radio show, Ron. The Soul of Enterprise I do with Ed Kless, who is one of my Verisage colleagues, but he also works for Sage, which is an accounting software company. And we started in July of 2014, and it's basically dedicated, the, the subtitle of the show is Business in the Knowledge Economy. And it's about how basically wealth equals knowledge mm -hmm. and growth equals learning. And that's the source of our wealth is, is our knowledge, right? The caveman, if you think about it, the caveman had the same amount of resources as, as you and I do. The yes. only difference between his standard of living and ours is the knowledge we can bring to bear on all of these resources like oil or, you know, things that make medical equipment or drugs or all of that. And so it's kind of a tribute to human knowledge and human capital 
And because of that, we have a lot of economics. Uh, so we interview a lot of economists and uh, business authors and pricers, professional pricers we have on the show. And then Ed and I will take one topic. It's a one-hour show. It runs every Friday live at 1 p.m. Pacific. And we'll take one topic and dive deep if we're not doing an interview. So it'll just be me and Ed talking. And we've done shows on the subjective theory of value and on how all prices are contextual and, and how to offer your customer options. And just so we've done over 230 shows, I think. Oh, and it's a labor of love. As, as you know, oh, radio is yes. a, a blast. Yeah, it's a labor of love. That's for, that's for sure. On the topic of knowledge, I've been uh, going through this kick recently about understanding may be a little more of value. I don't know if it is or not. It's just my opinion of than even knowledge. So if you reach an understanding of something or a topic or a trend or, or of anything, an understanding may actually be a bit stronger. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thought. There's no, obviously no wrong or right answer, but no, no, this is a, this is a great point. In fact, you've probably seen this Tom, but have you ever watched the backwards bicycle video? No, not yet. Just, just Google backward bicycles, about seven minutes. And this is, I think it's a NASA guy. He either works for NASA or a contractor at NASA. He's an engineer. And he talks about basically a welder made him a bicycle that when you turn the handlebars to the right, the wheel goes to the left. And he thought he could just jump on this thing and figure out how to work it. And it, and it took him like, I don't, I forget. I think it was like six months to be able to ride this thing. Cause it was just, a, he had to completely re-engineer his brain. And one of the lessons you take away from that video is knowledge does not equal understanding. I can stand in front of an audience and convince them of the subjective theory of value. And I can totally destroy the labor theory of value. So they have the knowledge. I mean, these are smart people. They, they have the knowledge that, okay, yeah, that subjective theory of value makes sense, but they don't have the understanding until they actually apply it and do it. Sit in front of a customer, have that conversation, explain it to the customer. And it's just like the backwards bicycle. Until you do it, you're not going to really be able to understand it. So, and the other point from the video that's just fantastic, and I've been saying this for a long time, I think one of the reasons the billable hour hangs around as long as it has is because we understand it. It's part of our DNA. And sometimes unlearning is much more difficult than learning something new. To give up something old is really, really hard. And, you know, there's this great word called satisfice, which is kind of like it's good enough. And it's a combination of satisfy and suffice. And it basically says, hey, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is billable hours good enough. Customers understand it. We understand it. It's good enough. It satisfices. And yeah, that that probably goes a long way to explaining why it's hung around as long as it has. That's terrific. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Curiosity is a science and Wildlife Center that seeks to help children acquire the tools needed to deeply understand the changing world. Curiodicy engages and educates families and children through natural animal habitats, gardens, exhibits, and programs that relate to the Bay Area and the global environment. You're invited to become a museum member to volunteer or to touch science by visiting and meeting the animals. For more information, go to curiodicy.org. That's C-U-R-I-O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y.org. We're talking today with Ron Baker, 
recovering CPA, and one of the world's leaders in the area of pricing professional services. For more information, you can visit thesoulofenterprise.com and Verasage, B-E-R-A-S-A-G-E dot com. Ron, that topic, uh, you just touched on unlearning and learning. I believe that uh, unlearning may be even more valuable than learning. What's your yeah, thought on I, that? I agree. I think it's Alvin Toffler who said the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who can't read. It's those who can't read or learn and unlearn <laughs> or something like that. It's more eloquent than that. but uh, it, it, and, yeah. and it's so true. And unlearning is really difficult, especially in an age where, you know, knowledge is, is being rapidly replaced. I just read somewhere, Tom, is really interesting that something like half of the medical knowledge since 1950 was wrong. Half? Yes. Oh, Half of what we thought we knew about the human body and, you know, medicine and all of that is wrong, was wrong. Because it's being, you know, we're making advances every day. And it, it just, it, it's, it's hard to keep up with, obviously. But, you know, knowledge can become obsolete. In fact, Toffler has this great word, obsolete, which is obsolete knowledge. <laughs> kind of hard to <laughs> say, but yeah, you know, it, 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 supposedly we've lost the knowledge to go to the moon. NASA doesn't know how to get to the moon, at least not how we did in the 60s, which is probably good because the technology, if we ever do go back, would I'm sure would be different. But just, uh, you know, the Stradivarius violin is another great example. We, we can't to this day duplicate a Stradivarius. That knowledge has been lost. Uh-huh. Along with Stradivarius is that a quote here I've got here with uh, people with high self-esteem are not threatened by the success of others. On the contrary, they're truly happy for another's success and will go out of their way to learn from them. How much do you think is ego play into the non-acceptance of the value pricing model? Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I think ego is a big part of it. I think you have to have, you know, you have to, you have to think you're worth it. So there's that self-esteem, that self-respect, whatever you want to call it. And I also think that it's, you know, really important to, to be able to project that to your customers. And so, yeah, I do, I do believe that, you know, pricing is a game that's played in between our ears. And Say that again. It, it's it, between our ears. The pricing is. It, yeah, it's in wow. our head. In other words, okay. yeah. you know, it starts with what we think of ourselves, and so ego is a big part of it. And I also think the other thing that's really important about people who are successful pricers is they don't have a zero sum view of the world. They have an abundance view of the world, where we know that every time we buy something as a consumer both sides benefit. Both the buyer and the seller make a profit. Now, accountants have done a terrible thing to the world. We've only, when we talk about profit, we only mean the seller. But what about the buyer? The buyer makes a profit too. And how do we know this? Well, because the only reason you bought a $4 cup of Starbucks this morning is because it was worth more to you than the $4 that you paid. Now, how much more? Well, I don't know if it was four and a quarter or $5 or maybe $12 because you were hung over from last night. <laughs> but what I do know is when the barista handed you the, the coffee and you handed over your $4, it's very interesting. Both sides say thank you. You didn't say you're welcome. 
<laughs> you said thank you, and she said thank you, or he said thank you. But in other words, we both benefit from a transaction. So a high price is kind of like an index of altruism. It's an index of your value that you're creating over and above the price you're receiving from your customer. And that's how wealth is created, and that's how it's exchanged. And I think people that are good pricers understand that. And that's, that's kind of how I got the great nobility line, by the way. Okay. There, there's nobility in understanding that everything you do for your customer creates a profit for them, not just you. Yes, and their customer. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, there could be secondary or tertiary uh, people involved with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do your fellow um, CPAs feel when they hear about your model? In the Can you early share with days, extremes for fun? Yeah, yeah, in the early days, I could tell you, scared to death. And I'm trying to track this line down. Some physicist who said it, and I don't know if it's a Nobel Prize speech or somewhere, but he said, basically, if a new idea doesn't scare you to death, it's probably not worth anything. <sighs> and that's kind of how I felt being, you know, one of the first guys out there talking at least to CPAs about this. I would get the strangest looks and, and, you know, it took a lot of arrows in the back. You know, they say the pioneers take the arrows and, and I was happy to do it because I knew it worked because I was doing it. Yeah. I was living proof of it. So it didn't, the, the, the objections just kind of rolled off me. What I was intrigued by was better examples and better stories on how to overcome those objections. And that's what I, what I tried to incorporate in my, my talks and my books. Yeah. Any extreme story that you might be able to share where you, you, know, you told someone and, uh, you know, the look on their face or they, they spilt their coffee or their beer or anything like that? Well, I, one of the most satisfying was a guy that came up to me in a Las Vegas conference and he looked at me and he said, Mr. Retirement, I need to buy you a glass of wine because I, I live in the wine country up here in Northern California. And he took me over to the bar and we sat down. And he started to explain to me a project that he was working on for a good long-term customer. This customer was selling their business and being bought out by new buyers. And he was kind of brokering the deal and working with both sides. And the, the new owners wanted to keep him on as their CPA and maybe even bring him into the business as, as like a part-time CFO or an outsourced CFO. Anyway, long story short, I know too late. Uh, <laughs> uh, Keep going, please. He was going to charge them 180 grand by the hour. And one of the strategies that we have and in, in, that I have in my book is called the tip clause. And the tip clause basically says for a good customer relationship, you basically do whatever it takes to get them to their dream point, you know, their, their end point, their preferred future, as I like to say. And then you let them decide what they're going to pay you. It's a pure tip. It's not contingent on a financial outcome. It's a pure tip based on great service, just like great service in a restaurant. And he deployed this pricing tactic. And rather than getting 180 grand that he would have got by the hour, he got a $1.1 million check. <laughs> I'm speechless. So you're not supposed to do that here. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> He got a $920,000 tip, basically, and he calls me, that's why he called me Mr. Retirement. Oh, my goodness. How about architects? Have you worked with many? I have talked to some. I've been in a few firms, and I know just from my reading that the profession seems to be a little bit mired in the billable hour. But, that's an understatement. Um, 
Yeah, I, but, but there's hope because a lot of these other professions were also mired in it, law, accounting, advertising, especially advertising agencies, by the way. They were probably most mired into it, and they are the fastest sector coming out of it. They are making a change. Now, part of the reason is because they operate in an incredibly you know, cutthroat competitive environment where there's really no barriers to entry. I mean, today, one of the largest digital media advertising agencies is IBM. If, if you would have said that five oh, years yeah. ago, you, you would have been laughed out of the room. And, and Deloitte, too, by the way, another a big four accounting firm that's got this you know, digital media company. That's the, These things are enormous, and they're, they're really encroaching on the advertising space. The point being that there's a burning platform in that sector, and that's causing them to change. There probably isn't a burning platform so much in law and accounting and architecture, I would assume, like there is in the advertising space. And that's why another reason for the slowness of change. I like that you said the, a burning platform. Is that something you've coined, a phrase? No, I think that's, that, it might have been a book or something, but you know, the idea that you're standing on the, the oil platform and it's burning, you've got to, you've got to make a change. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I like the analogy. So not working yet, at least that with the architects yet, or you have some, you've had some conversations with them and obviously you're on our show, the modern architect, which we'll go into a break real quick. I, I saw Charlotte, our engineer say, this is the modern architect, KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. Are you a fan of the California coast? There's an easy way to help protect it right on your state taxes. While preparing your tax return this year, check the box for Protect Our Coast and Oceans Fund in the voluntary contribution section of your state tax form. It's a simple way to give back to one of the things that makes California extraordinary, and the waves will thank you. Find out more at checkthecoast.org. We're talking today with Ron Baker, CPA, one of the world's finest leaders in the areas of pricing professional services. For more information, you can visit thesoulofenterprise.com and verisage, V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E.com. Ron, before I rudely interrupted uh, us, the taxes, how about taxes on value pricing? Is there a value of implementing value pricing and a tax potential tax opportunity or tax deductible opportunity by employing this? No, not really. I mean, it, it does, it, 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 there are some big cash flow benefits because I think it makes your work, your cash flow more predictable. It also probably reduces write downs and write offs from, you know, those angry customers that came <laughs> waving my bill in the office. <laughs> that conversation usually led to either a write off or a, I mean, a complete write off because they were so pissed off or a write down of some amount or maybe the customer left me. But even worse, Tom, even if the customer stayed with me after that event out of apathy, say, the, the relationship took a trust hit. And, you know, as they say, trust walks in but gallops away. I mean, trust is really hard to rebuild. And so it allowed me to predict my cash flow better. It reduced my financing costs of, you know, carrying accounts receivable. Because when you give a fixed price up front, you structure payment terms, whether it's monthly, quarterly, you know, based on milestones, whatever. But payment terms are part of pricing. And all of these costs were reduced 
just simply because I took the time to have a conversation with my customers up front before I did the work. I rather learn that the customer doesn't like my price before I do the work, not after. True, true. Can you share with us a story I think you wrote about our own Stanford's Larry Page and Sergey Brin when they were students at Stanford and uh, they developed that technology, I think, called Google or something, a search engine. Share <laughs> yes, with us a web browser. Yeah, share with <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, that little web browser. Yeah, yeah. share with us <laughs> your uh, experience or knowledge of that story. In, uh, in how Apparently, they wanted to sell it. And everybody told them, oh, this is nuts. Yahoo owns this market. You know, they'll, and they put a million dollar price tag on this technology showing the world what they thought it was worth. That doesn't necessarily make it worth that, but they weren't going to underprice it. And of course, they got no takers. No takers but for one million dollars no for Google. It, one million dollars for the, because it was an ascent, and they didn't, you know, nobody knew, and they knew they wanted to start a company, but they didn't want to start a web search company based on this technology. But they did, and I'm really thankful that they overpriced <laughs> yes. that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Google. But here's the thing with pricing: ninety-five percent of the mistakes that we make with pricing are underpricing. Ninety-five percent, really? Yep. Absolutely. That's just stunning. It is stunning. And we're not learning anything, especially with the billable hour. You know, the, the thing is with the billable hour, we keep writing down, we keep having these angry conversations with the customer, suffering all these different costs, and we're not learning anything from it. Because like I say, there's no education in the second kick of the mule. We're just getting <laughs> beat up over the, over the same thing. Yeah. At least when you make a mistake with value pricing, you learn from it. You get some of that knowledge. You get that feedback loop that, hey, we underpriced this, or we could have used the tip clause, or we could have done it this way. And one of the the most creative things about this, Tom, is we're big believers in professional firms offering their customers options. So you're starting to see professional firms offer, just like American Express, you know, a green card, gold card, platinum card. At different levels, and service providers get all you know flustered by this and say, "Well, how can an architect offer three options?" Well, there's lots of ways. You can do it based on access. You can do it based on turnaround time of the work. How fast do they want it? You can do it on all sorts of things if you just take some time and creativity to think about it. And so that's something that customers really appreciate because customers are humans, and we humans like choice. Yes. Now, have you ever quantified, Ron, how many uh, presentations before someone says, you know what, I love this. Let's say, let's just do a, a number, 10. Say out of 10 people who say, you know, I'd like to talk to you about value pricing, your service is based on value pricing. Out of 10, how many in your experience, if you've ever even quantified it, will say, you know what, let's go with this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I kind of have tried to keep track of that over the years because... I've been doing this for so long, I want to know the impact on the audience. And I would say that probably somewhere between 10 and 20% of each audience will go back and start implementing. And I know that because they usually contact me in the very early stages of it for, for help, or they have a question about this or that, or sometimes they hire me to help them. But a lot of firms, you know, the, the information is out there. You can do this on your own. It's not rocket surgery. It's, 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 not, it's not complicated. It's how you buy everything else in your life. 
you just have to think of it like you think of you yourself as a customer spending your own money. What do you want when you spend your own money? You want predictability in price. You want to know when you're going to get your stuff. This is what makes Amazon so great, right? It's so easy to one click and it's going to come in two days if you're a Prime member or maybe less. It, I mean, for crying out loud, Domino's, you can track where your pizza is, <laughs> you know, and, and if we give the customer that level of certainty and predictability, we create a better experience. And we don't think about, we don't think enough as, as professionals, and I'm condemning all professionals here, about the customer experience. We need to put ourselves in the customer's shoes and ask, how do they experience our firm? and try and make that experience better. Excellent. We're, uh, we're coming to the close of our show, and I'm really disappointed, Ron. Is there anything else that we may not have touched on in our time together that you'd like to share with our audience, and particularly our architects? Yeah, I'd like to leave everybody with one last thought. You know, if you pick up any economics textbook, they always talk about the three factors of production, land, labor, capital. And I love to ask audiences, if you think about those three factors, think about the type of income that each one of those factors generates. So land and buildings obviously will generate rents, and labor will obviously generate wages and salaries, and capital will obviously generate things like interest and dividends and capital gains. I then, Tom, ask a disarmingly simple question. Where do profits come from? Mm. And I've asked this of mm. Fortune 500 CFOs and gotten that, you know, that RCA oh, yeah. dog, yeah, oh, yes. look, you, you know, yeah. Yeah. I'm doing it right uh, now. They, just, <laughs> they kind of stare at you and then they'll start guessing. They'll say, well, customers. No, not really. What about before customers? And then they'll say, well, value. Well, you know, not really. I'm talking about where do profits come from? Well, the answer is risk. The answer is risk. And the problem with the billable hour is it puts all of the risk on the customer. The slower the architect is, the dumber they are, the longer it takes, the more they make. It's like the slowest horse wins the race. It's crazy. It doesn't reward you know, Frank Lloyd Wright for coming up with falling water in five minutes. In fact, it penalizes it. And so by taking some of that risk off the customer and giving them certainty in price, with all the caveats of a change order and all those other things we talked about, and I'm a big believer in a value guarantee too as well, where you say, hey, if you're not satisfied, only pay for the value you think it was worth. And I think we should do that as professionals because we, we should stand by our work. If we're, we're as good as we say we are, and as our webpage says, we should put our money where our mouth is. Disney does it. Nordstrom does it. FedEx does it. We should do it too. And I think we need to understand we need to take more risks. We need to stop flopping off the risk onto the customer because risk is where the real good profits come from. If you want windfall profits, super normal profits, you got to take more risk. Ron, it's been a pleasure and an honor having you as our guest today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. I hope you consider being on our show again in the very, very near future. I would love to. Thank you. You've been listening You've been to li The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Ron Baker, CPA one of the world's leaders in the area of pricing professional services. In addition to his role with Ignition, he's also founder of the Verisage Institute, a think tank dedicated to teaching value-based pricing to professionals around the world. 
Ron's also been inducted into the CPA Practice Advisors Accounting Hall of Fame. For more information, feel free to visit thesoulofenterprise.com and verisage.com. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E dot com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Yagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. Modern Architect.